Hello, and welcome back to the Observer Station. I would like to introduce my guest here, uh, Rachel. Rachel, can you say hi? Hey, how's um, it going? <laughs> can you tell us a little about yourself, who you are, where you live, or anything you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, um, so I'm in my mid-30s, and I met my husband here, Phil, and we're both from the Midwest, so we met in Nebraska when I was like 20, and um, we were going to college there. We both uh, studied biology. I work in healthcare now. Phil got his degree in fish and wildlife biology, but now he's a Bristol Bay fisherman. Um, he worked at a couple fish hatcheries and then got into the Bristol Bay fishery. So yeah, now we live in Alaska and yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> What region of Alaska are you guys in? We're on the Kenai Peninsula. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's a nice nice area down there. Yeah, it's a nice location. Like Phil can bring his boat back to Homer and work on it. You know, he's doing engine work this year, so. Okay. How big is the boat? What what is the boat style? I guess. So all the bay boats are 32 foot um, drift boats. He's putting in a jet engine, which a lot of people are doing in the bay now. Um, but they're all they all have limits on like length and not width, but well, thirty-two foot. Thirty-two foot, yeah. What are the benefits to a jet drive versus a standard? Um, you can go shallower usually, so your hull is different. And um, I also needed to change my hull to go faster. I was limited to what I could do with a prop. Okay. So there's 1,200 boats in the fishery, and let's just say 300 of them are jet boats. And those 300 jet boats almost catch double than the average guy. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's like a huge money difference for going fast and shallow. Okay, well, that's super interesting. I've seen the Bristol Bay boats. I've tendered for them, but... I've uh, I didn't actually they don't tell you anything about the fishery because it's not a federal fishery, which is what I focus in. It's more of a state fishery. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where are you at? Are you in Alaska? I, no, I'm in Oregon. Oh, OK. Yeah. I observed in Alaska for six years um, on the West Coast for a year. And I lived, grew up in Oregon and just commuted up to Alaska and back. I've gone there a few times since leaving observing and just in, actually enjoyed the state versus just going up there to work. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's worth enjoying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I guess we'll go straight into it. Background on fisheries. Um, I've seen at least you, Rachel, pretty adamantly on Facebook, or the Facebook troll page or anti-troll page. Um, how did you, I guess, what drove you to get more into fisheries recently? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I, I've always been very proud of what Phil does in the Bristol Bay fishery. And I came across the anti-troll page 
I would say like over the summer at some time at some point and I've just since then been wanting to find out more and just try to figure out you know where the truth lies and what the issues are and um you know we we've been in Alaska now we lived here for a few years left and then for a couple years and then came back and I've been wanting to get just more involved in my community and issues in the state. And so, yeah, since then I've been just kind of, you know, trying to learn more about how the federal fisheries work. Cause we're obviously, you know, a state managed fishery and it's kind of feels like a different world in that sense. So, um, yeah. Now I'm not sure if either of you, kind of know about what's going on um with cook inlet and their salmon <laughs> yeah i saw that yeah with the federal yeah 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 well, this is new the... rachel they're like trying to make it federally protected or federally regulated like two days a week or something and some boats that fish that can't fish the state regular yeah regulated days you I, know about that i read yeah i think i came across the article recently and I think they're trying to, isn't the Fed trying to do something similar with like the Kuskokwim too? That okay. I don't know much about. So I think, yeah, that's probably some a separate issue, but. Yeah, but I, it's super interesting to hear, you know, about people getting more, more involved with fisheries because obviously everything's, fisheries are constantly changing between what people want to buy, what can be caught, population numbers and things like that and getting more public input always seems like a good idea as long as people are coming from an honest place you got to hope that right so right yeah it's i know it's tough with like social media you know there's it's you know the instant gratification of i can instantly share my opinion and my thoughts without filtering them and it's on there you know publicly published which you know i don't think people really think about but it's kind so of talk, a good thing too. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, a lot of viewpoints help make a more rounded picture. Um, you've talked a little bit about how you've got interested in it and you had a biology degree and Phil has a fisheries degree. What, it, for formal education, um, did you take any fisheries classes or I, I don't know what, your college was like, um, your college experience was like, but what was that like? Mine was healthcare focused. So I work in healthcare. I did take like an environmental science class, but, um, and then I took like comparative physiology, which was focused more on like animals, you know? So those were the two, oh, an ecology as well, but Phil definitely had a more obviously, you know, wildlife biology degree focused on those things. Did Phil focus more on wildlife or fisheries? I mean, I, I know at least my college experience was you could go into fish and wildlife and kind of put your focus in your classes into like a particular branch. Yeah, it was more wildlife and it, it was from the University of Minnesota. So they're more of a wildlife and birds and plants where they didn't really have that much of a fisheries part of it. I mean, we did a little bit, but. Uh, you know, when when you're not next to an ocean, it sort of limits you. I mean, we're, I guess they have the Great Lakes sort of close, but 
uh, more animals and plants. Okay. What kind of hatchery work did you do? So I worked for the Department of Fish and Wildlife for Washington, the state of Washington, uh, raising salmon on the west uh, side there, uh, out of Nacelle, Washington. Okay, that's really cool. Um, what drew you from raising fish to collecting fish? Well, I, I had been I had been fishing before that a few years, and as deck handing. And, you know, I figured I'd killed enough of them. I might as well raise a few of them. No, uh, <laughs> it was it was a fun job. It was it was spawning salmon, and we, I lived right on the hatcher, and you could fish right there with a the rod and reel on your break. And, um, you know, it was a cool experience. It didn't pay that well, but um, it was it was it was a good job. Kept you in shape. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so did you always want to do Bristol Bay, or did you look at in, doing any other fisheries, or is that just where you got your start and just kept on, kept on? Yeah, I started there. I did a, or, a Washington, Oregon, uh, a few seasons of um, tuna, albacore tuna as well, commercially. And then I uh, did that with a guy, and that was a fun fishery too. Uh, but I, once, I, once I bought into the Bristol Bay and bought a boat and all that, then I was sort of locked in with what I wanted to do. There's other fisheries I would like to try, but when you have a family and kids, it's like, you can only be gone so long, you know? Yeah, I've seen, uh, I mean, working in commercial fisheries, seeing people gone for nine months, sometimes yeah. years on end. I just, I can't imagine how you do it with a family. And, um, yeah, even two months, Bristol Bay, I fish longer than most people. We fish all the way. So most people, Bristol, Bristol Bay, I don't even know, is like the Fast and Furious. I think you said you tendered, but they're there six weeks. You know, that's from getting there on the airplane to leaving on the airplane, if if not less, five weeks. And they love it because it's fast and furious. It's a huge run. It goes quick, and then you can go back to your normal job of whatever it is. Uh, take your four weeks vacation, do Bristol Bay, and go back to work. Uh, but I, I'm up there the whole season. So it's, there, so there's that's sockeye. Everybody just does sockeye. And then when the other four species are running, everybody basically leaves. So you can catch a lot of coho, catch a lot of pink still, and everybody goes home and we usually stay. So I'm usually there about two months, a little over two months usually. But that's long enough, you know. Yeah, that's a long time. I mean, especially yeah. just being on a boat constantly. So. Right. Yeah, it gets old. It gets old pretty quick, especially when there's nobody around to talk to anymore. When everybody goes home, all your friends are gone. Um, but I'll tell you what, Starlink is changing the world. I'll tell you what. <laughs> oh yeah, do you have Starlink on your yeah, vessel got or at the last week of the season we finally got it. It finally came from Anchorage. It was stuck in Anchorage for a month and a half. And then the last week of the season it showed up. And man, the crew loved it. I bet. Internet is always uh, a hot commodity up in Alaska and yeah. crews are very stingy with it, at least as far as <laughs> observers go. Um Oh uh-huh, I bet. Yeah, this was unlimited. Starlink now is unlimited, and it worked great. It was it was awesome. That's cool. That's I yeah. mean, it's they're talking Starlink, just that satellite, cheaper satellite internet. And if it's unlimited, there's a lot of applications that can be used for, you know, managing the fisheries and even selling the fish. Um, that that can change a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um. So how in-depth would you guys say your uh, fisheries knowledge is on Alaska, I guess, as a whole? Because there's, you know, there's a lot of different type of fisheries that go on, both state and federally managed. 
Uh, we're learning quite a bit. I mean, we've lived and been to a bunch of places and have, you know, we fish for halibut recreationally and uh, we've been to Ketchikan and we have a boat there and fish there recreationally and talk to people and, and talk to other commercial guys. And so we're learning a lot. So we're sort of getting filled in, I would say, uh, plus what you read on the internet. But I mean, just talking to the fishermen and even in like out of Homer, the last six or seven years, when you see like when you go out fishing and it's harder and harder to catch a halibut, I mean, something's going on and everybody, there's a lot of people losing a lot of money. You know, when, when halibut charters are going out and you can only go so many days a week now and only one can be a certain size and, you know, one can be big and one can be small and you're paying 400 bucks and you catch two 15 pound little chickens. I mean, there's a lot of people that'll get upset, you know? Yep. Yeah. I've, uh, I know a little bit about the halibut fisheries. I know, I mean, from my time up there, halibut fishing, just how it, the restrictions are set on the charters, especially over the last couple of years, like you said, that yep. they're only allowed to go out and a lot of stand downs from the charter fleets. And that that's a huge draw for people to go up and spend yeah. time and spend money in Alaska. So that's big time money, you know, everybody, you know, four guys on a boat, that's, 400 bucks a pot that's 1600 bucks a guy or a boat you know for four hours of fishing you know yeah yeah um so you talked about alaska fisheries did you know do you know any more i guess globally west coast fisheries or how any of that kind of works and runs i'm trying to kind of figure it out and like educate myself more on that side because you know, obviously, we, obviously, we don't see the like corporate processor side of things or the factory ships. And I know that the I've been learning a lot about just the North Pacific Fishery Management Council and realizing that there's a whole nother regional council on the West Coast. And there's one, you know, in the South. And I think there's like eight total. So I've just been trying to understand all of that and like how it's all kind of connected. i know yeah, i know a lot of fisheries have disappeared all along the west coast the east coast atlantic salmon you know have been gone and a lot of stuff is overfished and disappeared and you know they can't fish there's maine lobster maine all those guys are out you know that's been all over the news is not being able to fish on the east coast there um and you know families and and generations of fishermen not being able to fish for certain species on the coast all over the place i know florida there's a whole bunch of stuff uh down in florida i got buddies that live in florida that are gill netters in florida for certain species and and all their stuff is disappearing uh everything is there's you never hear of oh yeah these huge runs now came out of nowhere they were used to be small and now they're great now it's, it's all we used to have these huge runs and now there ain't nothing and now we're so there's there's you can't even go out and catch anything anymore. It's never the opposite. Yeah, I've definitely um can say well some some West Coast stocks are rebounded, um, but they're always there's always a fishery or a type of fish that kind of seems to go down even best efforts by you know the managers you got to hope that the managers are there to manage the fishery but obviously you can't prove that either way and it, right. 
there's a I know between Alaska and the West Coast, there's a lot of overlap between personnel and fishing vessels, especially with yep. the West Coast whiting fishery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it there's always more to learn. Uh, do you guys have, a, or at least you have a better understanding of the East Coast fisheries? I have a buddy who works in a regional office over there on the East Coast and t- his is a state managed fishery. Um, it's interesting to learn about them. And like you said, the, the main lobster uh, crash, I guess it would be defined as, mm-hmm. and it, I mean, even prior to a population dip, they had um, issues with whale entanglements yeah. and yeah. Uh, there, the, a few lawsuits happened against the federal government there and it's dealing with the wind farms and all that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've heard, read all about that. Uh, it's like problem after problem. It's not just one thing, especially over there. Uh, multiple problems all, which that's what with this trawling is. I don't see what we were talking, me and Rachel were talking is they get so much attention with the whale entanglements. And like, if you, if there's one whale, that gets entangled or from whatever for uh uh with the with the lobster guys or whatever they're shut down like if it's like a huge deal like if a whale can become entangled and hurt or whatever they're you're like you know fisheries shut down and here the trawlers will catch are catching orcas and nobody does anything there's no nobody's doing anything about it like that's just that's just orcas they're catching all kinds of other stuff too but they'll catch these whales throw them back overboard dead and the i don't see why the whale groups aren't just in an outrage when you go through uh you know outside of seattle and they have whale watching tours and they name the whales the orcas and they go see them every day of the year and they're making millions of dollars on watching these orcas it's like well they're what just because they have a name they're different than the ones that get caught in a net you know what i mean yeah yeah i um i mean the so I think the big difference there is, like you said, they go out and see those whales every day and they're resident whales. So they stay there. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about the pods that inhabit the Bering Sea, but that might be why you don't see a lot of or, whale advocacy groups. Um, yeah, because they're bringing like up these issues. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I can't imagine that they're transient because a lot of the transient, at least my understanding of whales, is a lot of transient pods. Um, are marine mammal feeders so they move around that way up and down the coastlines um, right. to follow the oh. seals and sea lions and that or the gray whales or yeah gotcha okay yeah That's i, know my, I am not a whale biologist so i will not yeah. know too much on <laughs> whales um, i just know the whole the what the gray whales go to hawaii in the yeah, winter sort humpback. of like the, yeah or the humpback yeah and then they go up through southeast and then all the way to home where you can see the ones that you can see you go on vacation you see whales and it could be the same whale that you saw in Homer, which is which is sort of cool. And it's it's not just whales either. It's like I know like in Alaska, you listen to NPR and stuff. And I've heard episodes on like sleeper sharks and um, like just mam- like animals that we don't that we need to do more research on and learn more about. And the trawlers are catching like a crap ton of like sharks and like skates and just like all kinds of other species of animals that are important to the whole ecosystem I think and that we don't have enough understanding of to really like responsibly manage those either 
Yeah, I mean, the. so I guess we'll just jump into this. You already kind of expressed your opinions on Troll, unless you have any other opinions you want to add to that. Um, is there uh, a difference oh, between uh, Midwater and Bottom Troll to you guys, or...? Well, to me, it sounds like, and I've never been on a trawler. I've had buddies that have worked on trawlers. Uh, I don't think we've had any observer buddies, but lots of guys that do crab fishing. And then, you know, they're on a trawler. And, you know, that's a lot of times they get their start for some Bristol Bay guys, that we know. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing is the midwater guys are on the bottom. They're they're dragging. Their bottom lines are on the bottom just as much 70% of the time. Like, to me, it's like, it's almost like with gillnets, like, I know their gear is different and and everything like that, but like in Bristol Bay, they have limits on like net length and they have limits on everything. And there's other gillnet fisheries that don't have as many limits on length and whatever. It's kind of like semantics to me. I I think they're all like the I to me it's more it's I like I think the bottom trawlers do a lot of damage to the ocean floor, but to me it's the just sheer biomass like millions and millions of pounds of just sheer biomass that's just like getting wasted and discarded that like it doesn't really matter what you are if you're bottom or midwater like I think it's just semantics you know which I know it's more than that but as far as like the issues that everybody's concerned about yeah I can say um that I don't I don't know anything about the 70% estimate. I can tell you from personal experience in Alaska, yeah, that there's a difference. The big difference between midwater and pelagic gear and is uh or not midwater pelagic, um bottom and pelagic is bottom gear has rollers on the bottom, you know, big tires to keep it from snagging on rocks and catching on things on the bottom, but they both have chafers on the bottom, which keep the nets from wearing out quickly from bottom contact. And oh, yeah. um, there, there's obviously contact. And they talked a few years ago, maybe a year ago, in the council, the, the Trawlers Association talked about adding trying to develop a sensor to actually measure how long they touch bottom um, i haven't heard much on that since they hired the grad student to like come up with a research project in that but i know that there's a lot of technology out there that mm -hmm. these vessels have access to that could it, it seems to me could help access it um, and and find the solution to this I mean, so, they know when they're, the captains know when their stuff's on the bottom. I mean, you can yeah. feel it. You, when your net's doing different things, you feel the extra drag, or the, you, they know, you know, when they're on the bottom. I mean, if they'd actually get one not to lie to you, you'd, you'd know real quick how long they were on the bottom. Well, you two said you go out and do recreational halibut fishing. So uh, have you guys ever caught Pollock, um, bycatch Pollock, while out doing that? No, we've caught in like cod, but no, okay. never, never Pollock. Okay. <laughs> I know from my personal experience, I guess recreational fishing out in Dutch Harbor and Accutan and that, that Pollock are typically found um, 
closer to the bottom. So that's mm-hmm. yeah. you know where they're going to fish and what they're going to catch. Right. Well, it's like cod too. You I mean that's where they pot cod fishes. They're on the bottom, you know? Yeah. Um, so you talked up, talked about and brought up uh, to the sheer volume of to- total allowable catch in the Bering Sea, Gulf of Alaska, and Aleutian. I think it's in the think it's in the billions of tons it may only be hundreds of millions of tons it's quite a bit um and you talked about the 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 sheer volume being the your main issue with it is that the main issue or is it the incidental catch or do you think it's the numbers of fish are being overestimated and not caught properly or yeah i think it definitely the incidental catch so the non-target species um, and then as, the, wa- yeah, the wasting of it, just, just the waste, the like pure waste that is just discarded. And then as far as like the Pollock, I mean, there's a ton of research that goes into the Pollock stocks and their behavior. And it's in their best interest to like manage the Pollock really well, the industry and to focus on that science. And I don't know if it to me. So I work in healthcare, and I understand literature. I understand data. I understand bias. And to me, it just doesn't make any sense to have people making the decisions when they are in the industry, they're trawlers and their own, even if it's unintentional or they think they're being, they're not being biased. They have their own like subconscious bias that, is always going to come through and you can hear it in the meetings. You can hear it through the questions they ask, you know, and it's definitely there and it's definitely obvious and you can see it by what they choose to like focus on. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, it's and and then it's the, the bycatch, the incidental catch of non-target species. And I mean, and it it affects us Bristol Bay guys too. Uh, The King, Nushigat King runs is down to, down to nothing. And now we're losing money, uh, not fishing to protect the king run, of which there's no kings to begin with, that are that are not returning to the rivers, and we have to sit out now because the trawlers have killed all these kings. And the same things happen in the Yukon, where those those people don't get fish now because the trawlers have killed them all, and it cost us. You know, we're the small town, small time business guy, and it's costing us tens of thousands of dollars a piece sitting on openers where a million sockeye go up the river and four four and they count them all and they'll have like four or whatever 40 or four thousand uh kings go up the river and millions of dollars are going by of unwanted escapement because of the trawlers and they're throwing them overboard it's it's really it's really a disgrace to humanity. So, um, there's, I know Pollock is technically 100% retention in that it's everything's required to come to a processing plant or, um, at least that's the non-catcher processor because the catcher processors process their catch at sea, so they don't bring it yeah. in. Yeah. Um, would 100% retention change any opinions on the trawl fleet or just uh, trawls need to be limited because they're um, the 
other destruction caused. I think it would, I think it would help and give that money that's raised from that to the people on the Yukon or wherever the fish is from that can't fish anymore. You know, the people that are needing support, you know, the hundred percent retention might, might help too with if you were catching things that there's a market for and you're making money on it, then the industry will start caring about that and doing better research and metrics around it. But then again, Pollock is cheap and like, so sorry, this is probably a really long answer to your question, but my issue in addition to the incidental bycatch and um, just the bias in the industry, if you go to Bristol Bay, it is designed so that the canneries, the industry, they cannot be permit holders. So like each boat is its own independent business. And they've created all these rules and laws around the whole fishery that keeps it small and independent and keeps competition and, you know, basically keeping it like I think of Trident and some of these big trawlers as like the Walmarts and Amazons of like the ocean. And my fear, if you did the 100% retention, yes, it would put more money into research of like non-target species and all of that, but you're putting more power and money into one company and decreasing competition and creating like more monopolies and putting more Alaskans and small businessmen like out of business, essentially. You're saying then they'll catch even more bycatch because they can get away with it just because they're and just the huge would become even huger. I just, yeah, I just think they would get bigger and bigger. And, you know, the smaller Alaskan halibut charters, the, you know, gill netters, the crab fishermen, they would all just be screwed, you know. Even more, you know. And then I also wonder, um, Wayne, you, you would, you know, you obviously know a lot about, like, what species they're catching, what you're, like, seeing in the bycatch, like how many of those animals are juveniles, would you say? Or is there like an estimate somewhere or like some data on that? Or, I mean, you'd have to, I guess, be a little bit more specific on juvenile. There's... Like okay. for like crab and, you know... I can say I've never seen a juvenile crab or king crab. Um or crab of really any sort. Uh, I've seen crab, just not any juvenile crab. Um, okay. Well, West Coast, I have seen juvenile dungies in that caught, but not so small that... Okay. Going to answer this really broadly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the nets they fish with obviously have a bunch of holes in them. And just yeah. like any other net, it lets all... Anything that won't conveniently fit through will right. fit through. And so we're not, I'm not seeing them because most likely because the nets just don't retain them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen, I've seen some really small juvenile Pollock pulled up and I think that's probably been it as far as juvenile fish. Um, a lot of, what we see uh, salmon-wise, they're fish with eggs and rowing them. They're relatively big. I don't think I've ever seen anything below 
you know, 16 inches caught on a trawler. Um, okay. And as far as sharks, uh, skates, other incidental catches, um, I mean, I've seen them pull up skate eggs or empty egg cases. Mm, um, right. But that's, I mean, most of the fish we see are in, or, uh, juvenile, I wouldn't say. I'd say they're almost to spawning or spawning fish. Okay. That's good to know. I've been wondering about that as well, you know, um, because I, I know the holes are like a certain size, but then once the net gets like so full, you know, it's hard to kind of escape that like inertia from what I've heard, but that, that could be totally wrong. No, I mean, that is, that is part of it. When you take, just like you do a sock, if you fill the bottom with a bunch of sand, the holes up top will get tighter and tighter to where things won't fit through. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's a lot of, it, are you seeing what's actually being caught or impacted? Um, which is why figuring out how much bottom contact the midwater gear is actually doing and, figuring out what the damage left behind by bottom straight bottom trawl uh, does actually does to a seafloor. They have talked about how long it takes for mm-hmm. a sea, sea substrate to rebound. And the initial estimate by the data collected was 10 years. And it turns out it might be 10 times that. Yeah. I just saw um, an article on that actually. Yeah. That they were comparing trawl bottom trawl, areas over years and then they shut an area down and they compared it to that and and uh it was quite yeah they said i think the trawling area had been shut down for 10 years and it was basically no recovery of of the stuff that had been trawling every every year it was like you couldn't even barely tell the difference because it was so bad basically that takes so long to regrow okay so we talked about the bike after trawl and we can continue to talk about this um but what is your opinion on the bycatch of other gear types? I know, or I can say a matter of fact that pot gear is, pot sable fish gear is pretty clean. I wouldn't say pot cod is, but pot sable fish gear is pretty darn clean. But what about long liners or pot cod, like peacod, um, gear like that? Which I know there's like a lot of long lining around Homer. And when they would bring it into the factory uh, for process, they had so much quota for not quota, but they had bycatch of rockfish. So there's definitely there's definitely bycatch for that too. And you know, you bring a rockfish up to the bottom, I mean, it ain't gonna survive. I mean, if anybody has fished sees that all the time, they're with their air bladders. Um, so there's definitely is other bycatch. Um, you know, in those other fisheries, Bristol Bay. I know Bristol Bay firsthand. There's a little bit of every once in a while you get some flounder if you go in certain areas, but a lot of that's released and they they do just fine. A flounder is pretty hardy, uh, and you're only you're not bringing them through, you know, 600 feet of water or whatever. It's two feet of water. Uh, so there's a lot. So not much bycatch for what we do, but there definitely is other bycatch in other fisheries. Uh, I don't think nearly as much as as the trawlers by any means. Okay. Yeah, I would uh, just say, just looking at, like, the numbers, there's just, to me, it seems a lot less. I mean, I've looked through the, like, ground, I've tried to look through, like, the data, and, they, you know, they have graphs and stuff of comparing bycatch in the different fisheries, 
and it can be it's tricky because you're trying to like make look at the graph and see like okay is this in metric tons or is this in pounds or is this a number of species you know and so it's really kind of hard to like tease through all of that um but i think that the trawlers are kind of like the low-hanging fruit of of a lot of these issues that we're seeing yeah i that's that's a, a good way to talk about it. A lot of the data presented is I. it's put out there by straight scientists. So people who don't have a lot of interaction with the public and deciphering everything that they're putting out there can absolutely be challenging. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the science and statistical committee meetings. I've tried and it, it's it's a lot to look at. It's a lot to understand. And the people presenting it present the information that they work on all the time solely. So they're not really good at understanding that not everybody knows what all these variables actually mean. And giving right. a, a yeah. good summary um, would absolutely be helpful for, you know, a citizen scientists, essentially like you guys that want to be more involved, know more about the fisheries that are directly impacting you on an almost, you know, daily basis, yeah. technically, because food yeah. is food. So, yeah. And, you know, just, you know, people, you know, you're never going to shut anything down or want them to shut down. It's just it's been going on for so long that now all the fisheries are starting to. It's trickling down. It's, yeah. It's after doing it for so many years that there's there's nothing left to catch anymore for 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 chum or or king salmon or you might not be catching that much because it's been 20 years you know and it's been all over like that you know and the the way i feel about it too is that you know in a lot of other places the west coast east coast you know you have so many variables like you have like you were saying wind farms you have dams you have so much human activity and it's and it's right there and it's more tangible and you can see it where here alaska there's so much like untouched wilderness like that's why bristol bay does so well there's no dams it's pure it's wild it's you know and like we really need to as a country i think do a better job of preserving a lot of what we have here you know yeah living in a state that has a lot of dams, you know, the Oregon, I don't know if you know, but Oregon's got a lot of oh. dams, Oregon and Washington both. And they're actually going through and removing a number of them. They're not going to remove all the dams. That's not practical. Hydroelectric right. power uh, powers so much and being able to flood control and right. agriculture and other aspects, they, they need pooled water, but they're figuring out more to hopefully do better for the future. Um, and it and shows, yeah, the, the the fish, the salmon can come back. The ones that, that what's the ones that, that they blew up or whatever, Rachel, those. Yeah, on the peninsula, the Olympic Peninsula. the um, Which one was that? The, they took down and the salmon came El back. Elwa. Yeah, the Elwa, that's right. Yeah. They can come back. Fisheries, they fish, they can come back. The Yukon can get fish back. You know, it's it's definitely possible. It's, it's you know, if you, if you fix what's going wrong before it's too late. So hot topic on the last council meeting was chum bycatch numbers. Uh, question one for you two is, what do you know about the, I guess, hatchery versus wild chum argument, uh, case being made by trawlers? Well, I 
working at a hatchery, I know the difference between the what genetics playing the role for that. But I also know that the chum bycatch was a lot of it was that they're claiming or whatever is Asian, uh, you know, going not going back to Alaska chum is sort of what they're playing their cards on. That's only like 18 or 20 percent Alaska chum bycatch. But Rachel was is really into learn, knowing about uh, um, where was I going with that? <laughs> I don't know. With no was. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> With, uh, oh, the bee season, where when oh, they catch yes. them. Yeah, I was looking at kind of the bycatch numbers of chum, and just knowing what we know about Bristol Bay, I mean, you know when, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but I would think that salmon would have some predictable behavior, especially during spawning season. And if you look at the bee season bycatch totals, from what I gathered, I think a lot of it's happening like weeks, I think it was like 29 or 26 or something to like week 32. And where the trawling activity is at, I mean, Port Moeller isn't that far. I don't understand why we could get like instant genetics in Bristol Bay. Like I can look at the Port Moeller report and tell Phil like, oh yeah, Egagic looks like it's going to be good. Like in a week. Yeah. And you get data like super fast, like in a few days. I don't understand how they can't get data like that, like out on the chain, utilizing something like Port Moeller, which I don't know where Port Moeller's at in relation to like the closure areas, but like. So background, Bristol Bay does genetic (laughs) testing and we have it, we have genetic testing uh, at Port Moeller. Port Moeller is a, a fish where they do every day, they fish so many miles out and they do quick sets and they do uh, maybe like 20 sets a day and they collect the fish and they have genetic test results in like two days. So they'll go, so the fish that were caught two days ago that you haven't even received yet because they're five days away from you yet, they're 30% going to Igagik, 21% going to Nushagak, 18% going to the, the wood, 7% going to Ugashik. And then you figure out, okay, that's where the fish are going in five days. That river will be good. So they have, they have the capabilities of doing testing, genetic testing, rapid, super rapid. It's there. I mean, we pay for it all ourselves. It's it's easily done. Like this is not new science. Uh, so that part is done. Uh, is can be done easily for the genetics. So testing. yeah, when you're listening to these council meetings and they're like, oh yeah. Maybe we should do more genetics. We haven't looked into this sooner and, and like the amount of time it takes to like get any of that accomplished. It's like if they could put as much energy as they do into defending, defending the trawl industry into things like that, like, it's you, so like, it's just, yeah. it's just annoying, you know, it's just like, come on, you guys, like, I know it takes money, but I, yeah, I don't know. And maybe you can tell us more about that, like, as far as, like, the feasibility of doing that out on the chain and, like, where the trawlers are at. And if you, like, do you think that the chum that they're catching, like, the majority of it, do you think that, like, that uh, it's being done in, like, a certain chunk of, like, the bee season or, you know? Um, okay, so yeah, the, the first first thing first, the reason why they aren't doing it 
now or they act like this is brand new uh, to them because like you said that it, it is done in other places is because they haven't had to nobody has forced them to do it exactly. asked them to do yeah. it exactly um yeah. and it it's absolutely feasible uh to do it there in dutch harbor where a lot of a, a lot of data is congregated there um if it's from the Accutan Trident plant. Uh, there's boats that go almost every day, every other day at least, to mm-hmm. Dutch Harbor. Um, and then there's three processing plants in Dutch Harbor that specifically do Pollock. And they're, that's where the motherships and the catcher processors and that all meet up as well. So yeah. it, it's absolutely feasible. They're not saying they can't do it they're saying they don't want to do it if they don't yeah. have to um and which which is you know it, it's it is an answer it's a dumb answer but it is an answer right. Right. Uh, because it, and for that's a it. great number of years the trump bycatch has been absolutely abhorrent uh, mm-hmm. it's, as someone who's worked at processing plants and on pollock catcher vessels uh that i get I, I've talked to a number of captains and the answer is they don't avoid them because they don't have to. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody gets two turds about chum and they're not wrong when they say that a majority of the chum they catch are Russian or Japanese chum. That's the genetic testing that they do after right. the genetics make it back down to Seattle shows that, that that's if you, right. it, that that's just a yeah. plain fact, but when they say or they act like uh, it's going to be way too hard to mm-hmm. do it in Dutch Harbor, it's a load of bull. Because the industry, just like any other industry, if you force them to do it or say, hey, we're going to make you do this, they'll figure out a way to do it quickly and cheaply. Well, so. that's like Bristol Bay. They do it on the boat that they're catching the fish on. And they're these, I don't know, I think they're like 40 or 50. 40. They actually bought a bigger one just so they could do genetic testing on the water. For the fishermen, so it's like it can be done on each each trawling vessel. Like, <laughs> no excuse, you know. Yeah. And it's uh, and it's accurate. They have all the genetics for all the chum. Uh, you know, like you said, they, when it says eighteen percent from Alaska, like it, they know where the chum are going. Like you, they know what river. Right. It, yeah. yeah. There's no like, well, they might be going somewhere. No, they're going to Japan or wherever they're going to the spawn. Right. So one argument that trawlers make and you two having some biology background might um, be able to agree, disagree uh, with this statement is that when they catch Asian hatchery chum, they're leaving more food, more or less competition out there for Western Alaska chum. Right. That's level. That's like the thing with. I mean, you can say the same thing about Pollock. If you're taking Pollock away from king salmon, that's their food source. Yeah. Isn't that directly affecting king salmon and in the and halibut? But yeah, that's the point. But I mean, is is there limiting is there a limiting factor in when all the salmon runs in the entire world are down? If they're all down, is is removing some more salmon going to make the other salmon do better? I think there's enough food out there that there's not that that there's there's not enough salmon out there with the food web and how everything works is if you take away 
two thirds of the chum that are fighting with the other chum, there's still so much food there for them to do that. They still would do good. Now you take all the pollock away even more. Now there's even less food in the food food chain for chum to eat as well. So, I mean, is there less competition? I mean, <laughs> I don't buy that in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, a hatchery can throw out millions and millions and millions and millions of fish, eggs, and uh, little babies, and you can drastically have all the return you want instantly you know in three years or whatever whatever you're raising so i mean if you're doing that manipulating the runs with with hatcheries and you can get the runs to be huge is there that much competition out there i don't think so yeah and then are you just creating an upstream effect where like phil said that the the asian and russian hatcheries are just gonna raise more chum you know yeah that's a that's a very fair point if i i didn't actually know that king salmon used i guess targeted pollock uh as a food source i've never i, I mean I, I mean i don't see why they wouldn't i mean if it's a bait fish why wouldn't king salmon eat it you know what I, mean? I don't know like the you're talking about like the zero to one pollock like yeah like the little pollock little guy like little okay. babies yeah. yeah little babies okay yeah I mean, but they're not. But he. But and he said before that they don't catch a lot of juvenile pollock, though. Well, they're there. They I don't mean, pull yeah, right. up a lot of right. juvenile pollock. But if your so. but if your adults aren't oh, making yeah. as many babies, right. it's going to affect the food of like. Oh yes, yes. Like if if king I salmon and chum are eating baby pollock, or it's all connected. It might not even be baby pollock. It might be something else that's now influenced because they're supposed to be eating pollock. Yeah. And now they're not making babies of which the king are supposed to be eating. It's all connected. So, like, if you take one fish out of the ocean, that's the the huge biomass. It's not doing one thing. Pollock aren't just there for people to eat. They're there for a reason. They're there for yeah. other fish to eat. They're there for you know, even when they die in crab, eat them or their eggs. Everything is all connected. Where if you're taking one huge gigantic biomass out of the ocean, you're like, well, they don't even get eaten by this fish. Well, something else eats them, of which something else eats them of which that's what the king salmon are struggling with now because that's not there. And people don't even know what at all, how they're all connected. You know, people, you know, it's such a huge. One question I have too is, you know, as you know, with like hatchery fish, they can obviously, I would think that the Asian and Russian chum can breed with like Alaskan chum. No, well, remember so those the, fish are going back they, to spawn where they were raised. So like, they're not going to be spawning with Alaska fish. You know, oh, okay. Yeah. They're going to go back to Japan where they were released or russia oh that was russia. a dumb question never no, mind it's okay <laughs> you can edit that out <laughs> <laughs> yeah they um i swear last year i saw the russian hatchery released or had a return of about a billion chum salmon mm-hmm. it was like it's, it's a wow. stupid high number um oh that's that's kind of like why I asked uh, asked you guys about your global knowledge is uh, Bering Sea. There's you know more than the U.S. that have access to that right. body of water. Right. Um, would you think an international fisheries, I guess, management system would be effective, or would it be too much, too big? I mean, it's the process is already a snail's pace as it is. So right, and then yeah. throw another thing in there, even complicating. And that's the thing is, if you can stop, yeah, like, you know, American companies and boats from doing it, they can just come in and do whatever they want anyway, and ruin whatever anyway. Uh, you know, if you know, you even see 
the area where the crab grounds are closed to crabbers, and then the trawlers can go in there and, and trawl. So, I mean, it's even different fisheries within the United States is a conflict, which is, you know, is, is it going to be, I don't know, is it going to make it worse? I don't know, is it going to be better? You know, that's another thing with that is so when we're talking hatcheries is, you know, the hatcheries do work. They take away the wild genetics as soon as you start doing it, which is what people don't like. And once again, your hatchery fish, even though it's in the ocean for two or three years, it's being raised for a year or whatever in a hatchery fed, you know, pellets and fed medicine and fed poison, basically. And even though it's in the ocean, it still has all that in it that you eat, you know, four years down the road. But they can save runs. So like the Nushigat Kings, they're talking about putting, well, put a hatchery in there and just raise a bunch of kings, which... So they're only getting the the, the escapement for hatcheries, the escapement for kings in the Nishiak is like 55,000 fish. That's all they want. There's millions of escapement for sockeye, millions of fish in each river, and they only want 55,000 in the last like six years. They've only gotten like 20 to 30,000 kings. So like that's why they're on the species watch list, and they're talking about putting kings, making a hatchery, and then instantly you get you know two, three, four hundred, five hundred thousand kings back. And then everybody's happy. I mean, but I mean, that's a big step of now you're introducing all that into the into the food system. And and once you go that route, you ain't ever going back. They ain't ever going back to a wild stock. Uh, so it's definitely it's once you do it, it's a point of no return. Um, it's definitely, you know, hot topic for sure. Yeah, I mean, the hatcheries, someone who went to college in a state with a lot of hatcheries and i'm a pretty avid fisher and hunter um Mm -hmm. hatcheries are such a hot button topic all the time and nobody ever is happy with anybody else's management style of hatcheries organism towards quantity or quality versus quantity in their hatcheries in that they release um fish that are slightly older uh than typical or historic Mm -hmm. And they get a little bit more fish back um, to the actual hatchery or a little bit higher return. Mm-hmm. But people only see the lower count numbers and they're unhappy with it, even though you get more fish back. Uh, but yeah, ha- hatcheries are, I think moving away from hatcheries is always best when feasible. Right. Um, I, but that's like the, if it's like the it point of no return, right? Yeah. If, it's, if there's none coming back up the Yukon for Chum, I mean, what are you going to start releasing you know putting hatchery chum in there i mean it's come to that point where if they're not fishing in the yukon i mean how many years in a row are they going to do that before they're like we need a hatch i mean you know what i mean that's one that's one thing but it's like i'm not for or against hatcheries i mean there's good and there's bad but it's like eventually something's got to happen i mean you're gonna you know look at the east coast of the united states there's no atlantic salmon anymore (laughs) You know, look at Washington, Oregon. They're all, you know, there's quote unquote wild, but it's all hatchery. Once you throw hatchery in there and they're spawning with each other, they might have an adipose fin, but uh, they're still hatchery fish. Um, I, if you guys have any more to say about trawl, I mean, go ahead. I don't really have any more questions. You guys have answered everything very thoroughly. Um, and it, it's, been a lot of interesting takes that I hadn't completely considered. Um, so it's always good to hear new opinions and learn new things. 
Yeah, we're, there's so much information out there. I mean, we're trying to learn and other people are trying to learn and and there's just so much, you know, when people try to blame climate change and this and that, but when, I mean, when the oceans only change, what, one degree or whatever, you know, since forever. But uh, I think when, when people that actually live around the area that start seeing that there's no fish coming back, that there's a problem and something needs to change. And for me, it's like the, I think just the, as I'm trying to like understand everything, the amount of bias and industry money that you just see going around in the management of this fishery, you know, we're in Bristol Bay, so it's all state managed. So maybe I'm just you know, have this mindset of like, this is the way it should be, but they do a good job and they do it well. And the industry has a very limited say in how things are done, the people who are making the money. And you see that, I mean, in in medicine, you have to have, the pharmaceutical companies have the money, they, data costs money. And so there's a level of that, but I just don't understand why there are so many representatives from trawl serving on these committees and making these decisions because it just doesn't seem right to me like even with and I don't know how you feel about this but like with the observer companies I mean would it be possible for that to change to federal hands and like would that be something that would be better do you think if the observer um, management was all federally funded or if it came from the industry, like a bunch of funding came from the industry for that, but to be managed under like a federal department. So when it comes to the observer companies, yeah, there's, I mean, obviously there's three major companies. There's only three companies in Alaska um, that do all the fishing fleets up there. And uh, a concern of, it, you know, essentially tampering with observers um, to mm-hmm. make it comply with trawl. It, it, I mean, you, you have to, I, I understand why people are concerned about it. It's not something I ever saw or experienced. Uh, you go out there and NIMPS, NOAA, and OLE, I don't know, uh, because Phil, you do state managed fisheries if you've ever dealt with OLE, but they're pretty strict in how things are done. Uh, when it comes to fishing vessels and their interactions with observers. Now, I know that it uh, observer companies will put people in specific locations that will match them better. You know, people who get mm-hmm. seasick won't get put out on boats that stay out for weeks on end. Um, and captains and crews do or plant personnel even you know sometimes request people that are easier to work with or easier to get along with but there's a lot of rules between you can't be at the same can't be on the same vessel more than once a year um and i i don't know it moving all the federal uh all of the companies to be federally managed instead i don't think will solve very much um if it goes if it comes down to it um because you're gonna have more you're more likely to see 
issues with individual observers than you are with companies trying to place people to make vessels or operators or uh, plant managers or things like that happy. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it would be hard to prove either way or form. Um, either it works well the way it is, and I can't, or it's there's there's another system that needs to be put in place. But putting it to the federal, um, the feds to divvy out where observers go, I don't think will be an efficient process. Right. What about if it was like in conjunction, like because the other thing I see, so like in Bristol Bay, I'm just using examples from Bristol Bay because that's what I know. Like if somebody goes like a foot over the line, there's like a helicopter flying above and you like instantly get a ticket and you have to like show up in court and pay these fines. And if you do it so many, I think you get like three strikes in like a certain time period, then you could get kicked out of the fishery forever. Like, well, can't you? I guess it depends on, or for a year. Sorry. I don't know what I'm saying, (laughs) but, but is there, um, like, is, I, do you see an issue with that when you're on the trawling boats? Is just like the enforcement ask because you're you can't enforce anything. Like you're you're there to collect data and like you have a biology mindset and you're identifying species and and collecting samples and stuff. And so, do you see that that's like a big issue? Is is just like the real time and timely enforcement of certain things, or do you not see a lot of like trawlers like blatantly breaking rules and stuff and maybe you can't talk about it a lot i don't know but no as long as i'm not naming specific vessels or crew members uh, i'm pretty free to talk about everything just because i've been on and do, done so much that it would be hard for anybody to track down any specific vessel i'm talking about so feel free to ask those questions okay. um so as far as aspects like that I can speak to my experience on the West Coast and in Alaska that between the VMS tracking system, which is federally uh, managed, I guess would be the best way to say it. The feds, the NIMPS, NOAA, directly have all of that data. So they know what vessel is where, going what speed and what direction. Um, and they turn them off. Well, they do they, that. They AI, VMS, AIS, one of those two tracking systems, the vessel doesn't have access to turn off. I thought maybe it is VMS that they have access to turn on and off. I, one of them is Coast Guard. One of them is industry for the federal waters. Okay. Um, and then observers go and we collect independent or we spot check the data when they record when they set nets and when they bring nets back up okay and observers are there for biology but we're generally there to observe we just write down if you see something that you think's a little weird you just write it down and when you're done on off the vessel on contract you bring it back you give it to a nymphs fishery person you talk about it they ask you a ridiculous amount of questions they go through and comb through your data and your notes, and if they see issues there, they have you write a report up, and then that report goes to the Office of Law Enforcement, which they'll call, ask questions, and then that goes to the Office of Litigation, and that's where so you can any, see the annual reports um, on that, the prosecutions in that. 
So it's all like retrospective. It's not like real time, right? Like you, everything has to be litigated if there's like an allegation of like a rule being broke. Yeah, everything's, I mean, as someone who's written a few of them, you can, you can call and talk to your provider or you can go call and talk to nymphs immediately. Same time. They all have cell phones uh, as long as it's for nymphs, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday, not a holiday. You can talk to somebody pretty immediately. You have uh, daily messages or messages that you can send to nymphs on a secured uh, website that they regularly check in. And there's ways to do things quickly. But as far as actual litigation happens, it's got to go through the lawyers. It's got to go to people way above any observer's pay grade. And they decide what is an issue if a vessel's reoccurring issue if it's going to go to court or if it's just going to be a visit from the office of law enforcement for them to come down and talk to the vessel or the vessel operator. Yeah. And see, and I guess that's like my issue is like, it doesn't seem fair, you know, like everybody else has this, this standard of like, well, may, and maybe this is just Bristol Bay cause it's like a small geographical area where you get like an instant, you know, fine or, you know, punishment if you, do something wrong which is seemingly not a big deal like going a foot over the line you, you know even if you're not trying to and the weather's like the wind's strong and blowing you you shouldn't be that close to the line but like you know what I mean like versus these trawlers just I think it's like easy for people to let their especially let their imaginations go and just like imagine what they could do wrong and like get away with you know what I mean I think that's probably where a lot of like, you know, some of the, what a trawler would call like a myth, you know, but like, it's easy to imagine what could, the rules that could be broken. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I get that. But I mean, you gotta, you gotta compare the scale of a Bristol Bay fishery, which, you know, is a, is a big fishery, but is compared to the Bering Sea in a relatively confined area versus the gulf alaska the aleutian islands and the bering sea i mean managing keeping track and making sure everybody follows the rule it's like small town cops versus highway patrol you never see highway patrol like if they're not pulling you over they don't have any somebody else pull over you'll never see one um versus your state or you know your local pd which you'll see a lot and it's the idea with electronic monitoring and electronic logbooks and aspects like that getting to track and make sure people are following and doing the things that they say they're doing is becoming easier Mm -hmm. and you get a lot of stories on the uh that facebook page i've read a lot of people talking smack about observers you know uh, we had an observer that did nothing we had an observer who took a bribe someone said something about getting a trip to hawaii i can say i've (laughs) at least in modern i mean a a lot has changed observing started in the 80s and has come back you know it's been 43 years since it started so a lot has changed but you can say that about fisheries as a whole have changed um it's become a lot more tame i can't say i ever heard a rumor or knew of uh, observer that took a bribe or did anything particularly shady. Yeah, I know observers that call sick days when 
there the weather's too shitty because we're supposed to like safety is the number one priority as an observer um and not going on deck and getting smacked by a ganyan or a ground line when it breaks is it's it's what we don't get paid to do so yeah exactly Um, but there's i've met a lot of fishermen too trawlers and longliners that also can't identify fish i know people who've called pacific herring small sockeye or small (laughs) salmon and i've seen observers do it too and that observers get checked a lot when they do it you have to take photos write an id form out work everything out in the key so that gets fixed on that end or you talk to another observer and you're like no that's not the fish you thought it was um and those things happen and fishermen much like hunters you know like to tell tall tales and kind of exaggerate a little bit so you got to take everything you hear with a grain of salt when it comes to people reporting things but yeah like you said it goes the other direction too what are these people doing on their vessels when there's nobody watching that Mm -hmm. and how do we know they're following the rules Uh, i've heard fishermen talk about other fishermen that they've been on the boat and this guy you know fished where he wasn't supposed to and i've been on one of my west coast boats he dragged his net you know i think a quarter mile over the no bottom trawler no bottom contact um and he reported himself i was on the vessel he came up like hey i already talked to ole they're gonna look at the fish we caught and decide if we get to keep it all or if it gets confiscated and essentially discarded um, because they don't want them making money off of the fish they're not supposed to be catching. Um, Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, honest fishermen out there too. So it definitely everything in moderation. If we were to do that, we'd be thrown in jail (laughs) for a recreational guy. Yeah. You catch one rockfish over the limit or one halibut over the limit. They can take your truck. They can take your fishing boat. Anything involved with the the crime. They're like, yeah. oh, you weren't supposed to be there. Just throw it overboard. I mean, we're going to give you a little fine, but just waste all that fish. <laughs> and I think that's something I'm learning, like, on the Facebook page is, like, you you know, obviously it's, like, Facebook. You can't believe everything you read or hear right. or, like, learning how to, like, I don't know. I think the most important thing for people is to just, like, just we kind of need to pick, like, a cause and, like, a focus and just focus on that you know but it is facebook i mean people can say what they want to an extent you know and i don't know yeah no it's it's good to see a lot of people involved and a lot of people with their heart in the right place but don't may not necessarily have all the information that they should to help them make a you know a, a more more informed opinion you hear about how you know previous or prior 2021 that the um native alaska representatives on the council was basically non-existent right yeah they and had they had that information at the start of the council back 80s 90s that may have made a huge impact to how alaska salmon are doing Mm -hmm. in the yukon and Mm -hmm. down in even southeast alaska yeah um, so it, yeah, yeah that's, it's it's not it's not recent it's when it's been see like you said yeah 30 40 years ago it's all's adding together and now it's like well there's not much chum or bycatch for this or that it's like well there's nothing there to catch a lot of it it's dead <laughs> it's gone 
Uh, oh, right. yeah, I know. You hear that from the trawlers, like, oh, look how much, look how good we've done over the last three years. We've reduced our bycatch by this much. And it's like, yeah, because well, you killed it all. Like, but yeah. anyway, yeah. Forgive our rambling. This is just <laughs> no, like, no, it's, just it's absolutely fine. This is why, I, you know, I'm glad you two agreed to this. It's been like I said previously, really interesting to learn new opinions and new takes on things. Um, people who, you know, Bristol Bay state fisheries, I don't know a whole lot about. I've got information generally on federal fisheries in Alaska and off the West Coast, but it's always good to like hear more. And I didn't know, I knew that they did the genetic testing um, just to kind of tell the Bristol Bay fishermen like where to expect fish to go, but mm -hmm. I didn't know it was so rapid that they did it on the vessel um, that, that they collected data on. Like that's yeah, really interesting. That's just, that's just recent. I want to say the last couple of years, not last year, but the year before when they got, they bought a bigger vessel to do it right on the water. And it's like, it's amazing. Like, you know, all you have is a radio station. There's two radio stations, the religious one. And then the, the one that we pay for. And, uh, it's quite amazing when they're like, okay, it's these fish are eight days away and 30% are going to this river. And it's like, whoa, that's like pretty crazy. Uh, where it used to take a week or whatever, you know? And then it was like, well, the fish are there already and you can't transfer. Because if you transfer, you have to sit up 48 hours. Uh, so if they're there today, you can't go to that river tomorrow and fish. You got to wait two days. So. And it's very regulated. Like they'll get on the radio and they're like, okay, we're going to, uh, there's going to be an opener on the Nushigak from like 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. So you got like a six hour window to like fish. And if the weather's bad, like it doesn't matter. You're like, you're out there catching fish, you know? Maybe the windows aren't that short. Are they ever that short? Just, yeah, there's, yeah. Just depends. I thought there were some that were, yeah. yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have for you guys if you have any questions for me feel free to ask um i like i said the only thing i'm not allowed to say are specific vessels uh that's or names crew names that's pretty much it oh, okay. i guess the only question i have is you see it on that facebook group or wherever i've heard stories uh with different fishermen is do you see so especially back in the day or whatever there's only observers on like some you know say 20 or whatever percent of the boats or whatever it was whatever it is do you see the guys that go that are observing when the observer is on board? That boat is going to different areas than the other boats are to catch less bycatch. Do you see that at all, or hear stories about that at all? So anything in that's your mind, like something they specifically train you to look out for um, when you become an observer. It's all the the fisheries I all did were 100% monitoring, so that mm -hmm. wasn't an issue. They weren't allowed mm -hmm. to fish if we weren't on board. Um, I, it's not something I ever heard about anybody talk about or even hint to happening, but it, it's hard for an observer who's going to be on that boat for one trip to say, okay, well, you guys fished here last week. That's a lot of um, what is going to happen on the hindsight of the, uh, you know, the federal looking back at the fishing data and saying, well, you guys fished here. Right. all except for when you had an observer and you fished over here but most uh, the pollock trawl rockfish is 100 percent monitoring pollock trawl and goa is 30 percent or 33 percent 
um, okay. monitoring. And then everything else is 100% monitoring. So, right. Were Were you working on a lot of the vessels that had 100% monitoring, or which kind of boats were you? Yeah, all the vessels I was on were 100% monitoring because um, West Coast vessels are also 100% monitoring um, because it, that's how they do their catch share quota. They need our data to tell them how much they caught and what they're going to run out of very shortly. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I like I just can't run my I, I just wish there was a way that like you could get like especially your guys's data like real time data that like and i know they talked about rolling closures and stuff and i just like you hear a lot of pushback from the trawlers of we can't have these restrictions we can't have these restrictions and i just don't understand like why can't you have more rolling closures why can't you shut down the season for like because how many ever money. weeks while the Trump's running? Is it because it's Pollock and they just they because of the industry and it being such a large corporation, they need that like constant stream of like revenue and like product that they're pumping out? That has a big part to play with it. So A season, B season Pollock. There's a, a time gap in between those two seasons for Alaska Pollock and the big reason, at least in my experience um because i was up there during covid so they tried fishing in between the big a season and b season and the fish they were catching were very bad quality small fish um they were the plants were scraping by with what they could get off the fish uh, in order to keep the plant processing because they the plant needs mm -hmm. it needs the money being made so they, they can keep the workers there, keep them paid and keep boats processing because they need a, a big concern with the Trump bycatch is the processors. So right. even if in Kodiak or Alaska, the they had this issue when they did the crab closure is that if they don't keep those plants running, maintained and personnel there they it doesn't limit just the pollock fishery it limits crab longline uh sablefish longline halibut it limits the crews that they can have to deploy to keep other vessels offloading and sending them back out to fish so it's like it, it's, it's a it's a problem of scale like you, you right. need so much in order to keep everything so they're, yeah. so they're playing the card of we have to make so much money to keep our people happy so like other fisheries that get shut down that they're only open two months of the season, you know, they only are making money for two months, but they're, they're playing like, we have to keep open the whole year to keep all our other fisheries. I was like, well, that's a bad, <laughs> nice, nice business plan where that's what, that's everything has opinion. to suffer because I got to make money the whole entire time. It's like the way that the business plan is designed, it's they've kind of got, yeah, I don't know. Like, like I mean, and I mean, maybe I'm just naive, but like if Bristol Bay can like open up for two, for two months of the year and get move all this like salmon, you know, like people in Alaska, man, they are like tough as nails or like they can figure out how to make something work. They can, I mean, you know what I mean? They're they're inventive they can I, they would figure it out you know what i mean like i guess that's my thing like i don't want to shut down a whole city you know but at the same time i don't know i feel like i feel like alaska's pretty adaptable that they could 
they could make it work with whatever restrictions they had and it would just have to they would just have to change their business plan kind of i don't know but well this is like the, the paul guys well we have to feed the world look we, that's our that's our we have to feed the world all that we have to catch all this fish to feed the world like no you don't like you're just greedy bastard yeah <laughs> you don't it's not your job to feed the world it's your job personally to make as much money as you possibly can that's their job yeah but sorry to go off on a tangent there but yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's fine. It's you know, kind of what I was expecting and hoping for. So it, it's oh it's, good. That's <laughs> a, a lot of the arguments I hear from the industry and from industry reps, and that are are the ones I keep proposing. And I, you guys' responses have been really interesting, um, and you keep throwing things out there that I hadn't considered. So. Right. What's your? I guess what's your? And you don't have to. I you, you probably won't put this on your episode because we're kind of probably trailing into like just a lot of extra talking. But I guess what's your view on every? Like, what do you think the solution is? And like, what's your stance on? I guess like a elevator speech of like where you stand with everything. Well, I <laughs> or it doesn't need to be an elevator speech. People <laughs> need to get their shit together and get all this figured out. Um, I, I think. Bycatch is silly. I, I think it's something that could absolutely be fixed. I've seen I've seen truckloads of fish put back on vessels and dumped out at sea because they're not allowed to keep it. The plants aren't allowed to process it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's you know we've kind of talked touched on this earlier that if you give them the option to make money from that then what's going to stop them from targeting it i know exactly when it comes to kodiak there was an issue or concern with pacific cod bycatch from pollock trawlers mm-hmm. and that was a, a concern because pacific cod had closed in the goa their numbers had crashed they weren't doing so hot and mm-hmm. so they closed the cod specific fishery but Vessels were still allowed a certain level or a certain poundage of cod bycatch, and cod pays more than Pollock does, so you want to catch mm-hmm. that if you had the option of sure. making money. And that, that's a concern there. Um, I know when it comes to Chinook salmon, uh, a lot of, I think all the processing plants I worked at, they worked up the salmon and donated them to the food bank. Um, when it came to chun salmon, there's just, they didn't, there's, there was nothing, I don't know, they weren't required to, there wasn't anything to be done there. Um, and halibut, they, I don't think they were allowed to work them up either. And it, it, you get stuck in a balance between what are they allowed to catch and what are they not? Mm -hmm. Um, If you allow them to make money off of it, cool, that's what they're going to do. They're going to, people are up there to work. They're up there to make money. Don't go spend nine months on the Bering Sea unless you're rich and on a cruise ship. (laughs) Right. Um, They're there to make as much money as they possibly can, no matter what. If they can do it, they can do it. So it, I'm not against trawling. Um, I think there's ways to do it correctly, and I don't think it's being done correctly. I think dealing with. The I think there has to be a chum cap. I think chum, but I don't think it needs to be anything more than a Western Alaska chum, like a, an Alaska chum catch number. I I don't think worrying about the Russian and Japanese right. fishery, their hatchery chum, are going to do anybody any good. Right. Um. And 
the sheer amount of Pollock caught by the Pollock industry is it it does create a huge amount of food surplus coming out of Alaska and going to places where they they won't have the sheer biomass um, of food that that Alaska has to offer if and if when slash hopefully things will level down and they'll change their fishery management strategy from what it is now to an ecological based one i think that would be a significant change i think there's a lot of fisheries that need to be managed on an ecological level looking at just well there's a lot of this fish so we can catch a lot of this fish and Mm -hmm. not like what eats that fish what that fish eats yeah what other byproducts just you know a natural die-off what does that do for crab food at the bottom of the bering sea from the net pollock who just die of old age um yeah there's i i don't want to say that this is just a foolish idea to just keep trawling um because i i think moderation and proper management are always possibilities and keeping things healthy safe sustainable and while I don't eat commercially caught fish, um, because I've seen how long fish sit on deck and it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. disgusting. Yeah. Um, I catch and do my own fish, but I I know there's a lot of people who don't, can't, won't yeah. go out and get their own fish. That I mean that there's a lot of access to fishing, but most of that access is hatchery fish. So yeah. yeah. Well, then look at people in Washington, Oregon, you know, they don't even know when the salmon spawns or whatever. It's like, you know, they don't have a relationship with salmon yeah. anymore. Yeah. 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 I think I think they can do it responsibly. I think when it's managed correctly, everything's possible. But when it's a free for all and, you know, look what happens, everything, everything is going to crash. And it's not just going to be the pollock, it's everything else. And that's already happening. So it's like, well, what? It's too late. And that gets yeah. into like with the like corporate structure of like seafood now, like we see it in Bristol Bay too. Like we got 50 cents a pound for salmon and like there've been years where they, they, the plants they like, I think if things were limited, like you said, everything in moderation, like if you limit the production capabilities, you limit vessel size, you limit all of those things then you're not going to have this cannery who's like yeah, just processing as much as they can and then pumping out all this product into the market and like driving down prices of everything else. I mean, that could be totally wrong. I don't know if that's, you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to limit two limits for, you know, and create all this rules of and everything where free market and right. You don't want to limit the, but. the free market, but like when the corporate, the businesses get so large that they lose a lot of the checks and balances, you know, if, if you could, I think if you could find a way to like create more competition in trawling and limit the size and the total allowable catch. And I don't know, maybe those aren't the answers. I don't know. So I'm trying to like figure out. I don't think anybody has the answers to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to figure out a balance between a monopoly Yes. And a highly regulated market is something econ- economists have been fighting and struggling and arguing over for centuries at this yeah. point. West Coast, yeah. a lot of the trawl vessels are independently owned, but they're, you know, they're regulated by the prices and what the plant's willing to take. Mm-hmm. Um, in Alaska, a lot of the vessels, at least, you know, the BSAI fleet, I 
can say most of them aren't uh, independent. They're owned by the big companies and they go offload at those plants and they get paid that price. Mm-hmm. And saying one or the other is more effective or more efficient is it's a tough, tough cookie to bite yeah. into because it, it's it, it. It once again, this it all comes down to a matter of scale and trying to figure out the right balance between you guys shouldn't be allowed to just, you know, pay these fishermen 50 cents a pound when your overhead might, you know, be mm-hmm. a couple dollars a pound. But when you're going out and selling it at that point for $15 a pound, how is that fair to anybody except for your mm-hmm. stakeholders and your pocketbooks? So, right. Yeah, yep. for sure. Definitely. Definitely a fine balance. And like poor, like uh, poor business plan too. Like if you have that much, like they told us like, oh, we have so much salmon that's not sold from two years ago. It's like, well, that's a bad, that's a bad, (laughs) that's bad planning on your part. Like I know you have people who plan five years ahead and, and they set the market prices and they know what the market is going to do. Although with COVID, I know a lot of stuff was like unpredictable and everything just went out of whack, but I don't know. It's yeah. Yep. It's all on the marketing team. As you know, someone who lives on the West coast, you don't see targeted ads towards like Alaska fish or even West coast fish. A lot of the West coast flat fish gets sent uh, not in the state. I don't think I've, been to a restaurant yet that sells like sable fish and sable fish prices are yeah and down in the pooper but i costco was having a sale on it and sable fish is like it's good it's really good so Uh yeah it's a lot of what they're lacking i feel like in the marketing departments i don't know I i don't know how the fisheries market but i feel like they should probably be pushing a little stronger so they can sell the fish and not have the backlog and people can get paid a fair wage for the work they're done and the food they're providing that's uh that's a big with that bristol bay they have we have a a group that we give one percent to it's called the bbrsda bristol bay regional seafood development and they're supposed to be they're they're basically trying to market for the processor so doing the processor's job marketing the fish but you never see ads you never see a super bowl ad saying eat wild salmon or eat like you said sable fish or eat tuna you never see any of that you're a little bit with the salmon sisters you're seeing a little bit but yeah that's a whole other little thing that they're doing or whatever but well it's when you it's terrible when you get companies like trident who are like pollock 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 and they're putting all their eggs in that basket because they have a catcher process they have control over every point in the like they're they're cutting out the middleman and so they're gonna push to market that thing that's like super cheap for them to make where they get most of the profit you know like of course they're gonna like market the crap out of that you know (laughs) yep it's all in the money to be made and money being made and that's That's yeah. it. Like you said, it's, if they can get away with it and do it, they'll do it. And they're making, I mean, they're business, they're business guys. That's what they're. Yeah, they have a business and they're running yeah. a business as efficiently yeah. as they're allowed to. So. Yeah. And then they're going to yeah. do it. It's like, that's, you know, it's not shame on them. It's shame on us for letting them do it. Yep. I've told every fisherman that I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw them. I know that they're going to follow the rules when I'm paying attention, but. 
right. yeah. the moment I look away, I, I don't I don't trust any of them. That's right. a healthy way to do it because then I build a level of skepticism. I've caught fishermen doing, you know, things they know they weren't supposed to do and confronted them about it. And they're like, oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. It's like you absolutely knew the rules. You've been doing this <laughs> yeah. for a while. I know you know. We both know. <laughs> I'm not a fool, okay? Do you ever see him trying to throw – unwanted bycatch overboard when you weren't looking uh yeah yeah i've 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 absolutely seen him do that and i mean it's not that it i recorded what happened and they got in trouble they got their fine and talked at or whatever um and i don't know if they broke the behavior i a lot of those fishermen i've never seen again which i count my blessings for that because there's a lot of (laughs) turds out there but oh yeah <laughs> I, I, i've seen people attempt to break the rules uh inefficiently that they think just because i'm not looking directly at them that i don't have peripheral vision or that and i've seen people you know a- i've seen accidents legitimate actual accidents happen where you have a green horn or things like that and they don't know what they're not supposed to do they don't know what my job is they don't know these things um and that happens, but you can tell when someone's like trying to be sneaky about these rules and they get in trouble and get caught. But I mean, is that one out of 10 times they get caught or is, right. am I ju- was right. I just an exceptionally amazing observer and caught them right. this time or right. did they slip up? I mean, it's hard to say. And I'm sure that happens. And I, I know that happens in more than the troll fleets. I've seen my fair share of longliners try to be sneaky. Mm, um, right. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Hopefully we didn't use too many filler words or. <laughs> like... No, no, you guys have been absolutely awesome. I, I think this is going to go uh, relatively unedited, not a whole lot of gaps or anything like that. And nice. you guys have just been doing a really, really good job. I, like I said, I'll say it again. I say it a lot. I really appreciate this. Um, your answer yeah. has been really good, really eye-opening. But I need to ask, what is your guys' favorite fish to eat, and what's the best oh. way to cook it? Uh, like a saltwater fish? Any fish. Uh, I don't care. You know, I mean, I grew up eating perch and walleye. That, you can't really beat that. But um, Yeah, lots of fish fries in the Midwest with walleye. <laughs> but, you know, I mean – we eat a lot of, you know, a fresh king on a boat that's never been frozen and you fried in bacon grease is that's really tough to beat right there. A little jack, a little jack salmon. I would have to agree. I fished <laughs> with him for a month one summer and I got to try that and it was, yeah, it was definitely the best fish I've ever eaten. <laughs> I don't think I've ever cooked a fish in bacon grease. And it, oh my I word. don't know yeah, why yeah. I've never thought about doing that, but. <laughs> Well, you shouldn't need to with King, but I don't know when you're just. Yeah, we save our bacon grease and you put it in like one of the crude deckhands always makes it and and oh, it's so good. I don't know. I try to make it at home, but it's once it's frozen, it just loses that a little bit and it's just not the same. Like mm-hmm. if you freeze fish even one time, it's like, eh, I mean, we're fish sounds are like, oh, you froze that fish? <laughs> well, only it's frozen once. Oh, gross. Yeah. We really like to also like bake halibut and then eat it like on a white, like a pasta with like a white sauce. That's really good. Oh, too. That's good too. With like lemon yeah. and capers and stuff like that, you know? Okay. Oh. But yeah, with kids, big fish. So. 
Oh yeah, yeah. With with little kids, we try to eat a lot of salmon. It's so good for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so easy for them to eat too. It's like the best finger food. It's it's so good for them. And I will do a plug. Uh, if you're ever in Homer, Alaska, you got to go to the bake the bagel shop and get a lox bagel. They have the best, like a salmon lox bagel. That is like one of my favorite things too. Where's the uh? Where's the bagel shop in Homer? I've only been to it's, Homer one time, so you know. It's by the gear shed in oh, okay. like the diesel shop there. Yeah, it's like on the. It's like it looks like it's in an industrial building, like because there's a diesel shop there, and it's like kind of hidden behind that. On like when you go past the gear shed, and then you take a right to go to like the boatyard, it's like on that corner. Oh, okay. Yeah. We actually when I when I went down to Homer, we went to the. I think it was the gear shed and went and picked up some rain gear because it was absolutely yeah. pouring down rain that day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good It's a good place to go. If you'd like to give your own take on trawl or any fisheries-related topics, opinions that you may, you know, you may have your own opinion on, you may have your own take, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, email, I've got plenty of ways for people to contact me, so feel feel free to reach out and get a hold of me if you'd like to schedule your own interview or if you'd like to just give me your opinion. Um, just let me know if you're comfortable with it being publicly shared or not so that I know what I'm allowed to do with it. And everybody, have a great Thanksgiving weekend and enjoy you know, the rest of your year.